This is Archive Atlanta, episode 126, Homes for Fallen Women. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. I am so excited to be back from my little podcast break. In a shocking turn of events, I actually got some episodes done. So I'm a couple weeks ahead right now. I don't want to jinx it. Um, And I even updated some mini episodes over for the Patreon page. I also started watching Handmaid's Tale. I, I know I'm a few years too late. I am unsurprisingly obsessed with the show. I feel like that had something to do with this week's topic. So I am always curious about women's history, feminist history. Um, It's no surprise. But recently I've been very interested in the role of sexuality in history, how that worked in Victorian society, you know, how the world dealt with these moral crises. And so while Homes for Fallen Women may seem like a really bizarre rabbit hole of history, it's actually at the time was a big modern you know, topic to talk about. In the late 1800s and into the early 1900s, cities across America would gather women and young girls, usually pregnant out of wedlock, and hide them from quote-unquote respectable society and attempt to quote-unquote reform them. And while these places came from good intentions, they were typically places of hard labor, crude reform, and ideas and methods that we consider outdated by today's standards. So this week, we're going to talk about these homes for fallen women in Atlanta. But let's start by defining what a fallen woman was. In the late 1800s, that term, which is today very archaic, described a woman who had, quote, lost her innocence, end quote, or had, quote, fallen from the grace of God, end quote. During the Industrial Revolution, and generally in times of crisis throughout history, women were often forced to turn to prostitution to support themselves. And this term fallen was interchangeably used for female sex workers or those who were pregnant out of wedlock or had had sex before marriage. The history of vice in Atlanta needs its own episode, but as the population grew after 1900, the city gained more places of middle and lower class leisure, things like vaudeville, cheap theaters, and houses of ill repute. And while Decatur Street was our infamous thoroughfare for that sort of stuff, like a red light district, in this research I also learned about Manhattan Avenue, which was a site where today is kind of the State Farm Arena. And you better believe I have a whole episode working about that because it was so fascinating. This week, I want to focus more on Atlanta's efforts to contain and reform this vice and the fallen women of these areas. Who led these efforts? Who funded them? You know, where were these places? How did locals feel about them? And we can talk about a few of these names that we know. The first mention of a home that I found dated back to 1889, when Sister Cecilia, one of the founding nuns of St. Joseph's Infirmary, and Mrs. C.D. Horn, a wealthy widow, received an anonymous donation to start a House of the Good Shepherd in Atlanta. There were other Houses of the Good Shepherds across the U.S., and previous to this donation, Atlanta charity groups had sent their troubled women outside of the city to other states and other cities. And so whoever donated this saw a need for one in Atlanta. Unfortunately, this never happened. After news of the donation, talks about establishing the home went silent. 
Fast forward two years later and new plans for a home are announced. Reverend Joseph Cadwallader, a congregational minister, and his wife, who was president of the Florida Women's Christian Temperance Union, shared that they felt called to move to Atlanta and establish a home for fallen women. At first, they put out a call for available homes to rent, like, you know, if anybody has anything, let me know. And when they didn't get anything, they purchased a landlot at the corner of Lloyd and Glen Streets, south of Richardson, between Washington and Formwalt. And so this is kind of sort of south downtown, but really what is now just covered in interstates. And local Atlantans are like, no. And here begins this lasting dichotomy of people wanting these homes in Atlanta, seeing the needs for these homes, but just not near their homes. Essentially, they're the NIMBYs of the 1890s. And I bring this up because we still have these exact same issues today, although currently it involves shelters for those experiencing homelessness, or quote-unquote affordable housing, or God forbid, multifamily housing. But back to 1891. A.G. Rhodes, uh, who was a furniture kingpin, he led this outrage as saying that the home that he just bought is directly across the street from this proposed home. And so, you know, it's going to lower my property values. This is unacceptable. Atlanta City Council steps up to legislate this and passes an ordinance which would prevent it from happening, basically making it near impossible for any homes like this for fallen women to ever operate. And the Cadwalladers abandoned their plans and left the city. It would be another year before the idea is taken up again. Mrs. M.M. Wolfe came from New Orleans in the spring of 1892 to establish a home here in Atlanta. Unsurprisingly, she was having a hard time too. Twice she found a spot, but neighbors revolted. She then decided to purchase the former location of the home for the friendless, which was at the quarter of Peters and West Fair Streets. And there's a lot of legal gray area here. So the general story is that city council allowed her to live there, but she was technically not supposed to be running a home without a permit. And so the neighbors completely freak out about the possibility that there is a fallen woman's home in their midst, and they hire a decoy young girl to pose as somebody asking for admission. And Mrs. Wolf is just shocked by this backlash. She's like, I'm doing good work. I want to operate a house here for motherless women, destitute children. She's like, I I don't understand what the issue is here. Now, after being caught admitting this girl, she enters into a legal battle. And there are a lot of public op-eds in the paper from written by prominent Atlantans and everyday Atlantans alike. So the men against it worry about having these undesirable women walking on the same streets as their righteous wives and daughters And they all go to police commissioner at the time, Captain James English, same Chattahoochee brick English. And he says, listen, there's not much I can do without proof that this house is in operation. By late November, 40 women meet at the YMCA to permanently organize Mrs. Wolf's home for the homeless girls. And then part of their mission was to find a permanent place. So basically kind of stepping in to make this all legal um, and and not have neighbors be upset. So there's two sites along the Chattahoochee River streetcar line that were proposed. By December, they've gathered now 75 prominent Atlanta women who have been touring the home. They're pledging support for it. And this is where Kate Waller Barrett enters the story. 
When Mrs. Wolf first came to Atlanta, she was given the name of Dean Robert Barrett as someone here who could help her with her cause. Reverend Barrett was assigned to the pastorate of St. Luke's in 1886. His wife, Kate, was encouraged to pursue her medical degree, and she became an MD in 1892. By the way, not only did this woman have six kids, she never wanted to practice medicine. She just wanted to have the MD after her name. And it was Kate who would take up Wolf's cause. She was the one who got city council to be sympathetic to the Peter Street building. She was the one that got the donation of five acres of land out on the Chattahoochee River line um, and already had a small house on there. So this was the site that was chosen for Wolf's new home to move to. Now, before we keep going, I need to introduce Charles Crittenton. He was a New York-born patent medicine manufacturer, Protestant evangelical, and philanthropist. And when his four-year-old daughter died of scarlet fever in 1882, he devoted his wealth to founding the Florence Knight Mission to quote-unquote rescue prostitutes and later the Florence Crittenton Home for Homeless and Unfortunate Girls and their infant children. So in 1895, it was Kate Waller Barrett who would join with Crittenton to form the National Florence Crittenton Mission, where Barrett served as vice president. But that didn't happen yet. Back in 1892, in Atlanta in December, there's a guy named J.W. Ellsworth. He's an agent of Crittenton's, and he visits Atlanta. So this guy decides that the corporation is going to donate $1,500 to Wolf's home, with a stipulation that it be renamed to honor the daughter Florence. And so the money contributed um, joined into the total of $7,000 that they needed to complete the house. This house had 38 rooms, a nursery, sewing room, and when it opened, it had 20 girls and 13 children. In the first month, it had three new admissions and two births. By October, there was a formal dedication of the official Florence Crittenton Home for Fallen Women, with Bishop C.K. Nelson giving the lead speech and attendance by the governor. And I don't know exactly where this was. It was near the city dumping grounds um, on the river line. So that kind of, it's questionable. It kind of puts us out maybe somewhere off Bankhead Highway. Um, and it didn't stay there for long, so we'll cover that in a minute. Now, we have a lot of accounts from visitors and the press about how wonderful this place is, but we also have accounts of women who ran away. In November, Ava Duke left the home. She left her newborn baby, who sadly, right after she left, the baby fell ill and died. In 1894, we have the story of Cora Plunkett. She was only 19 years old. She had been working at Selig Pants Manufactory. And while traveling between there and home, she met a young druggist who, quote-unquote, ruined her. She was arrested, uh, but posted bond. And then months before the court date, she ran away from her home on Bell Street, and she was found in a Decatur Street boarding house. Hours after escaping from the Crittenden home, she committed suicide by taking deadly drugs. By November of 1894, a report from the board of the home shared that 11 children had been born in the last year. A lot of them in this time in history are dying shortly after birth. So this was many factors. Um, they were being born to mothers who were on drugs. They were born premature. Um, the typical diseases of the time that we don't have today. So there's a sad statistics there in the home's earliest years. There's also 38 women admitted 
Um, they were called inmates. One inmate was married. One became a teacher. Seven were sent to service. Sometimes they were sent to um, go into religious services. And by December of 1895, we have a little bit of drama ensue. There was a daughter of a prominent Atlantan, still can't figure out who it was, who was in the home. And she told of abuse at the house, but also shocking revelations about, you know, who this woman's baby daddy is. Basically just, it was in the news. And Mrs. Wolf says, everything is lies. But it is brought to light, she does admit that she uses corporal punishment. A year later, the city attorney creates a special committee to investigate the home, investigate these claims. They do go out, they speak with some of the girls, and then strangely, the investigation was postponed indefinitely and never went anywhere. In October of 1897, there was a push by the operators to move back inside the city limits. It would make things so much easier, both from a travel and access perspective, but also with services like police and fire. And at this point in history, Kate Waller Barrett has been made national superintendent for the Florence Crittenden Home Missions for Fallen Women, and she was visiting Atlanta to give a speech at the YMCA. And she tells the crowd there are now 52 Crittenden homes around the country, with Atlanta being the fifth ever established. And in 1898, Charles Crittenden himself comes to Atlanta to speak, arriving in a special train car that he lived in full-time when he traveled the country. I found one mention of a home established in 1899 in Kirkwood called the Anderson Rescue. Ava Anderson had come to the city from out west the year prior to do mission work. The story is that when her husband died and began to travel the country, first arriving in Atlanta to work at the Beacon Light Mission in downtown. She opened the Anderson Home for Fallen Women as a one-woman show and it quickly reached capacity. There is sadly nothing more for me to find. There's nothing in the papers. There's nothing in the archives. So I don't know how long it stayed open. There are also other attempts at starting homes at the same time. So around 1911 in the Hapeville area. And these sort of morph into a different category, which is industrial schools for young boys and young girls. And I do want to have future episodes about those. I mentioned Manhattan Avenue briefly at the beginning of the episode, but this was a notorious street in Atlanta whose history focuses mainly around 1912. Again, hope to do a whole episode about it, but Police Chief Beavers issues a massive crackdown on the block, and Bell Summers, who had previously, quote, kept a house on the block, which, you know, take that as you will, reportedly found Jesus when she was forced to close. And she turns her life around. She gives away all her money, which was $2,500. She raises more funds with a dinner at Duran's. And the goal of all of this is to open a Martha's home, based on the biblical story of Martha, who entertained Jesus when he had nowhere to go. This fundraising was also led by the Men in Religion Forward movement, which I plan to cover in a at least a mini-episode, hopefully. And J.K. Orr also did his own supplemental fundraising. And so the reason that this group and these men um, were really so into this was kind of twofold. So they were trying to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. By 1912, the Florence Crittenden home needed major repairs, so they needed money. 
And this Martha's Home, as it was called, it was very much the project of the men's movement. And they liked having this former prostitute as the front because that was good for publicity and good for fundraising. Unsurprisingly, Martha's Home ran into the same issues as the first houses did years prior. In 1913, the police board ordered the home to move from its Harris Street address. Reports made by three neighbors circulated that it was the site of quote-unquote indecent conduct, and there was also rumors of the inmates, it kills me when they call them inmates, but the inmates carrying on flirtations with people passing by. There was also pushback from religious leaders criticizing the neighbors and city leaders that were not supporting this home, accusing them of you know, shunning downfallen people. It's not biblical. It's not the right thing to do. But soon after, Martha's home moved to Gordon Street. So today, Ralph David Abernathy, which was outside the city limits. It had a cemetery on one side. It's Westview Cemetery. It had a railroad right of way on the other. That's today the Beltline. And it was not near any houses. So the organizers of the house thought they were safe. But that was still a problem. The 7th Ward Improvement Club flooded City Hall with complaints. They contended there's 300 people living in this vicinity. You know, it's on a main thoroughfare. It's a growing neighborhood. It's just unacceptable. By 1914, Martha's home was under the charge of Ethel Claxton, who was the city's first policewoman. And then by the fall of that year, Fulton County decided to open a home for incorrigible girls. That's what they described them as, which started with 14 girls, and it was located on the site of the pauper's home. With this new home opening, the need for Martha's home was no more. And so the girls from that home were just dispersed. Some were sent away, and there was actually a public fund started to raise money to send some of them to college. What I haven't mentioned is that the Florence Crittenden home was still operating this entire time, and it would continue to be open until 1981. Reports for 1913 showed that 14 girls were quote-unquote rescued through marriage, insert eye roll, um, out of 106 girls that year being cared for in the home. In addition, there were 52 babies, many of whom were adopted, and these trends continued through the decades. By 1972, the Florence Crittenden home was struggling to stay open as a wave of closures happened across America. They went from a waiting list of 18 months out to no waiting list at all. And so then they started to stretch their scope, not just including, you know, girls and women who were pregnant, but just any girl or woman that had been kicked out of their home or had run away from home. By 1976, the national trend was shifting towards an acceptance of unwed mothers to keep and raise their children. To give you an idea of the stats, in 1968, 96% of unmarried mothers placed their babies up for adoption. And in 1976, at least one or two agencies reported that 50% of their mothers were keeping their children. By 1979, there were 20,000 pregnant teenagers in the state of Georgia and the Florence Crittenden home only served 370. So unsurprisingly, by 1981, the home announced that it would close due to financial difficulties. If you Google this house today, a lot of the more modern stories that you're going to read are about adoptions, um, about birth parents finding 
their children that they put up for adoption or vice versa. Um, and so there have been some difficult stories um, coming out of that to read and, you know, some heartwarming stories of people that have been reunited after all these years. So there you have it, the story of Atlanta's home for fallen women. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to leave a rating or a review. And you can visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend. I'll talk to you next week.